Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, let's talk about other family members, and uh, you have some wonderful memories of people who are sadly no longer with us. We'll start with your mom and dad. Let's start with Doris. Tell us about her. Well, I have not only wonderful memories, but some memories that I wouldn't call them bad, but they were part of my growing up. My mother was an amazing person, and I didn't realize how amazing until much later. She's a, she was a beauty. She was born in 1905 and during the Edwardian age, and they dressed her up as a kid in some old pictures looking very Edwardian. But by the time she was eight, 17 or 18, she was at the Ritz roof being squired there by guys that admired her good looks. Mm-hmm. And she was a woman who took herself very seriously, and she was temperamental and difficult And for most of my adult years, there was a fraught relationship between between me and my mother. Uh, I was an only child, and she really expected things from me that I wasn't capable of delivering, I don't think. And um, there is no question that uh, uh, she was a hard person to get along with, not only for me, but for my father and for some other people. On the other hand... Uh, women flocked to her, um, younger women, because of the fact that she was her own person. You and, did mention in the book, and it's, it's so interesting that she was a liberated woman, you call her, at, at, and at the time when women weren't necessarily. Right. She wasn't a member of the movement, but she was liberated. She actually thumbed her nose, and I'm putting my... <laughs> my my thumb to my nose right now. Yes, you are. And she she really said to the men out there, hey, you guys, I'm going to live my life the way I'm going to live my life, not the way you tell me to live my life. On the other hand, she was a great cook. She made chopped liver beyond your dreams. And, uh, and uh, she, uh, now Lois, my wife, makes chopped liver by the same method or formula that my mother doesn't take taste so much like liver. It tastes like everything that, that's in it, uh, for onions and this oh, and that. heavenly, heavenly. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't say Jewish cooking is the most fantastic cooking in the world, but there are some things that are pretty good. Chopped liver is one of them, and uh, there, are, there are some other things. But, I, you know, as far as my mother was concerned, I mean, when I, when I was in my office, I actually— um, set it up uh, so that I could see who was calling because I would want to avoid some of her calls sometimes. And I don't mean to say I was a bad son. I'll get into that. I mean, because I was an only child and, uh, you know, you just don't walk away from a parent, although at times I would like to have walked away. Let's take it chronologically a little bit as far as my mother was concerned. I think it's a subject we should spend some time on because I learned a lot from my mother. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If she was a pain in the ass, I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like she was a very strong-willed personality, and uh, uh, there are a lot of people in our lives who are like that. But was she like that around everyone, and like your father, for instance, as well? Well, she gave my father a hard time, and I think my father was a much more 
quiet. Uh, I'll, t- I'll talk about my father. I love my father immensely. He was a great guy. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about him maybe next. I don't know. Um, but they their marriage lasted, and my father died reasonably in this day and age, young at the age in his 70s. He's always troubled by stomach ulcers that he had around the time I was born. He almost died at that time, but uh, he lived on. And uh, But anyway, to get back to my mother, she got along with a lot of people. I mean, you know, when she fell and broke her hip, which led in nine months to her demise at 96, she was living by herself. She had to drag herself to a phone for five hours to get Lois and me to come over and still wanted to stand up. I said, no, you got a broken hip, it looks like. And she never did stand up again and never was in her apartment again. But, um, you know, I think uh, uh, I think she, she made good friends, uh, as I was starting to say before. Uh, women loved her because of her liberated attitude toward the masculine or the male world. She just wasn't going to have that. Um, I think that, you know, going back um, of memories in my life, when the 1938 hurricane came along, um, you wouldn't remember that, Jordan, but it was wild. And I was seven years old. And to me, it looked like fun. The trees might have been falling, but I said to myself, but I got to get out in this. And I went out and my mother was trying to get me back into the house. But I, I stayed out for a while, and, you know, let's face it, a tree could have come. A lot of trees came down. That was devastating. Oh, absolutely yeah. devastating. And she was up there on the porch on the third floor, of, third floor of our apartment building on Gibbs Street in Brookline, the one that lies close to Bray's Field, mm-hmm. and the one that was close to the gangland murder that we're going to talk about. These are all teasers, folks, that's coming up. <laughs> so so your mother was obviously quite protective. Being an only child, too, uh, at that point, uh, or at any point, moms and dads are usually a little overly protective. Was she like that? Uh, no, I wouldn't say she was overly protective because, you know, number one in her life was herself. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't mean to say that she was not... A good parent, uh, or a, she was a combination of things. She was very, um, uh, she was very uh, liberated, but she also was uh, a mother and a wife in a traditional sense. She never left my father. She always took care of me. She took me up to see the Italian barber in Coolidge Corner. I still remember his name, uh, Nino Pepper. He used to cut my hair, and I used to wait till he put water on my hair at the end of cutting my hair, which felt so good. And I can see Nino in my mind's eye. Came over as an Italian immigrant, said his play, you know, was in Coolidge Corner, and my mother thought he was a good barber, and she would take me over there, and I can remember her taking me to kindergarten the first day. She was a good mother and a good cook. Um, she was sort of a combination of things. Um, I think that um, I think that she she wanted a lot of things, and she was hell bent on getting them. And when I say the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I think that she had persistence and perseverance built into her personality. Now, whereas Lois is a wonderful person. This is your wife, just so My wife, Lois, yeah, who's sitting in the other room. She's great. And Lois and and Doris, we used to call her Doris, had their problems at times. That often is the case. Uh, We'll talk about your uh, in-laws in a little while, too, and you had a great relationship with them. But that's often the case with mothers, particularly of only child sons, 
and the wife, who's the new mother, <laughs> the new woman in the world. Um, was was did she ever work outside the house? Oh yeah. What did she <clears throat> do? Well, there was a. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Jordan. There was a very well-known uh, um, ladies' shop in Coolidge Corner. You probably heard of it yourself, Sorreld. Yes. Now Sorreld was, if my mother was um, was was uh, you know wedded to herself, so to speak, and what she wanted, Sorreld was the champion of all. Whereas my mother, dying at ninety-six, drew close to a hundred people to her funeral, at which I gave the eulogy. I amazingly. Three or four people turned up at Sorrell's. On the other hand, Sorrell was a, a, a very successful businesswoman. And my mother and Sorrell were friends. Um, and Doris worked in Sorrell's for 10 or 15 years selling stuff, usually accompaniments to dresses and outfits that Sorrell would sell, high-end stuff. And my mother worked there for a long time, and she was a good retailer because she was so nice-looking, Mm-hmm. And anything she put on would look good. At the eulogy, I had to tell everybody, well, I don't know if I had to, but I did. I told them, you probably all want to know what Doris is wearing today. Oh. <laughs> wow, she so was I a said, close horse. Huh? I said, you've probably, se- you've probably seen her in this, that, and I forget what it was. But, yeah, they, because she was uh, – I always wanted to see what – she was wearing. She was a clothes horse. At 90, I took her to to do a portrait uh, at the Photographic Resource Center, which at that time I think was in the Temple Israel or close to the old Temple Israel. But anyway, uh, she um, she looks at 90. She looked at just at my age now. Yeah. She looked terrific. Mm. She looked great. Well, good genes, first of all. Well, I, I do have good genes because, <laughs> you know, my mother um, – my mother was. Uh, she did have one bout with cancer. Now this is a, this is a good story. Uh, this will show you sure. something about her. Sure. She was at eighty two or three. She was um, she was uh, diagnosed with bladder cancer. So the doc, they had a protocol going on at that time down at the Mass General Hospital, whereby a combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, they thought they might be able to cure the cancer without an operation. Now, you know, usually bladder cancer is a killer for a woman especially. And um, so the, f- the first thing I remember is when she, we went together to see the doctor, the urologist at the Mass General, who told her that she had cancer. So after, we, after that, uh, we drove back to Brookline. She said, come on, let's go into where there was a well-known fish restaurant in uh, Brookline Village. Yeah, let's have a drink. <laughs> a drink. You know, she just she took it in stride, in yeah, other words. Yeah. And I'll shorten the story. She went through this long protocol of chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Now, for chemotherapy, she had to go into the hospital for two or three days several times. For the radiotherapy, she was had to go be uh, be treated with these huge machines. I mean, they looked like something from space or something. Mm-hmm. They were unbelievable. Well, she actually beat it. And when she left the hospital, the doctors got together and gave her some sort of a medal for bravery and perseverance. And I remember one time I went up there when she was having the chemotherapy, uh, and uh, she actually shook her fist at God. And she said, why me? (laughs) She was a pretty incredible person. And um, so... 
I began. I, I really realized how incredible she was in the last nine months of her life. What happened? I told you that she fell, broke her right, hip, right. couldn't get up, and she had to be in nursing homes after that. One nursing home, I remember, I, it was so horrendous that I really got upset, and I went over there one night to see her, and I got so upset with the person whom I knew had known from college, a lady, um, that I went uh, somewhat ballistic. And I got her out of there the next morning into the place where she was the last six months of her life in Needham. I mean, it taught me a little bit about old people and how they get taken care mm. of. And it was just a bad, bad place. Um, but in the last months of her life, I went to see her every, every single day. Um, and uh, I got to know her better. And when she died, she got this multiplicity of cards from people. Um, my own s- legal assistant for 25 years, Kathy Janess, who I might have spoken of before and will speak about again, a remarkable woman. Women have been a big in my life. And um, Kathy thought a lot of my mother and wrote her a very – and she was not – She was uh, Kathy was laconic, although very wise – but she wasn't laconic in this message. She wrote a very touching uh, card to my mother, and uh, I think that um, I think that our relationship was bothered by her temperament and the fact that as an only child, she was putting too much on me that I could mm-hmm. possibly measure up to. But on the other hand, uh, I always felt that uh, my feelings for my mother, obviously, from what I'm saying, have been were mixed. Over the course of time. Which, by the way, is the case for a lot of people. I mean, uh, it, it's easy to say one person in your life was magnificent and perfect or just the opposite. We're all human beings. We're all flawed. And, of course, you have the wisdom of your years and years working with people and meeting people. And there's no more great influence than your parents. Talk a little bit more about your dad, though, because you you write in the memoir how much you really, really cared for your dad and how special he was in your life. Yeah, well, I would combine two people, actually, my father and my uncle Matt, who was my father's senior. By about 10 years, uh, Matt went on the Keith circuit, and he had been kicked by a horse when he was young. Let's explain what the Keith circuit is for those who don't know. Yeah, the Keith circuit was the old vaudeville circuit, and uh, so that um, uh, he was a dancer. I think it was Hearn and Rutman, I think an Irish guy and a Jewish guy, and they danced, and he couldn't speak very well because he'd been kicked by a horse who was a stutterer. And Max was even more gentle than my father. And uh, so Max, uh, uh, you know, he knew Al Jolson when they got to Baltimore. Al Jolson would invite him over for dinner at the family home. That's where Jolson came from. Mm. And I think his years in the theater probably were from about 1905 to 19... 20, 25 maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he knew all the ball play. He loved baseball. Knew all the ball players from the 1890s, Ed Delahanty and uh, people like that uh, that nobody knows about today, but I know about because I'm a nutcake on baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so that was your uncle, a pretty interesting cat. Oh, I got a great picture of him that I might put up in my home office, which I'm just setting up of him with his uh, at that time when he was young. And so he outlived my father. He died at 88. 
And Lois and I became very friendly with him. We invited him over the house, and he didn't have a lot of money at that time. He lived in a small apartment, bought us a little grandfather clock that we have hanging down the Cape. He was just a nice, nice man. And um, Your father was in the shoe business, not show business, shoe business. Yeah, Matt and, um, <laughs> Matt and my father were close. He had a bunch of, uh, I think there were about 10 children in the family. Wow. The father, the grand, my grandfather, whom I knew slightly, he died in about 1935 or 6, lived in Revere, had a big house. Ten children came from Odessa on the Black Sea, and he was a master tailor. And when he came over, he was the master tailor in Revere. And um, so so that the family is from that. The, the, the Revere connection, there's something about amusement parks that— Play I will. I'll tell you about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear that story. Well, anyway, my father, um, so he was born, I think, in 1897. And uh, he was gentle. Um, he was successful, very young, because I think the way I described in my memoir, because the, the, where they lived on Shirley Avenue in Revere uh, was very close to the amusement park there. Yeah. And the amusement park had all sorts of things going on. Some were legal, some weren't. Um, and I think my father... He spent time there, and he he learned a little bit about the ways of the world. Uh, he was uh, he was a nice looking guy. I think he had a lot of women in his life, and uh, he was successful in the ladies' shoe business. Became manager of one of the prime stores down in the business in the Washington Street district uh, of Boston, which used to have a lot of used to have a lot of high end stores. Uh, Emmett's is a name that comes to mind, but whatever place it was. I think he was in his 20s when he became the manager, so he was quite successful. And uh, You said he had ulcers, and he sounds like a guy who worried a lot about what was going on. Yeah, he did worry a lot, because then after he was manager for a while, he decided to, he wanted to go into business for himself. And although he had several stores, and some were, and I worked in some of them, I don't know whether I could describe what I did as work. I mean, going out on the to see the television in the adjoining bar to see how Ted <laughs> how Ted Williams and Vern Stevens were doing that day there for the go. Red Sox. There you go. I mean, you know, I've been accused of uh, of being lazy and a non-worker all my life, Jordan. I probably should tell the folks that that this this could well be the story of how does a lazy guy <laughs> become reasonably successful? Well, I guess given the choice of you know looking at feet all day or looking at Ted Williams swat a home run, I can understand your passion. Well, I don't know. I think I grew into the into a time when I liked feet. <laughs> <laughs> Subject for another podcast, another time with somebody else. So so tell me more about your dad though uh, later and and. Did you see much of him, or was he a constant worker, or what? Well, he worked late hours, but the reason I liked him is because he was, uh, and loved him so much, is because he was a gentle person. He And Lois uh, feels the same way. Uh, you know, uh, he, he died in 1970. We got married in 1963. And she, she always liked him and considered him a very gentlemanly, courtly person. And, you know, this is born out the night he died. I was at the hospital with him. Was over at the, uh, at uh, I think, Tufts Medical Center, mm-hmm. and um, he. There, it was obvious that he was going to die, and I was with him, and they had said two days before, you know, your father's in a coma, and you'll probably never be able to speak to him again. But doctors are not always right, Jordan. We know That's that. That's true. That's true. And he came to himself, 
and uh, and I was able to talk to him we very sensibly. So I, we I was at the hospital until about eight that night, and uh, we were talking. And uh, so this is typical of Mo. They used to call him Mo. That was his name. He said, you know, Larry, he said, it's getting late, and, uh, you know, I think Lois will have dinner ready on the table. I mean, I really think you ought to go home. I mean, you know, we'll get together tomorrow. He'll come tomorrow. So I said, no, I think I should stay here tonight with you. No, he said, no, I think you should go home. I really think you should go home. So I said, well, okay, I'll go home, but I'll, I'll come back early tomorrow morning. So, um, and this this was replicated later in my mother's case. I'll get into that. But I went home. They called me about 6 in the morning. We think you ought to come. And I got there, but he was already gone about mm. a half an hour mm. before. And his body was still warm. And he was, you know, he had lost a tremendous amount of weight. And his, he always had very smooth skin. And I remember running my hands over his body. And I really, and you know, felt... It, it, it's almost, uh, it, it's a story we've heard a lot. It's almost as though he didn't want to bother you. He didn't want to have trouble you. He wanted you to go home. Well, he, he was he was he wasn't so much interested in himself as he wanted Lois to. He didn't want her to have a bad right, shake. Right. Right. And um, so, uh, so when he passed away, and in my mother's case, um, you know, I said I was seeing her every day, and um, it was came to a time when it would look like she would go, but could be a day, could be two days, three days. So the same thing happened, and uh, I got there the you... next morning, and she was yeah. gone. But uh, one more thing, Jordan, is that my father had a ring that he wore since the time he was married. It was an unusual ring, gold with a ruby, and his initials in sort of a, sort of a, a, a Chinese-looking font, and um, diamond and ruby and studded with diamonds, and I never I ne- I don't like jewelry. I never wore it, but I I want, but that ring made me feel close to my father. So I started wearing it, and I, and I had not sized it, and I and it was fell off during a theatrical oh. performance, and I never was able to recover it, and that bothers me until this day. The the question I have for people whose parents lived, you know, relatively long lives is did they live long enough in your estimation to appreciate what you had achieved i mean you you had achieved a lot by 1970 and certainly after that with your mother still here did they express pride in what you had done well my father always used to say how are you going to make money you watch baseball you don't pay attention to the shoe business Uh, and i never wanted to go into the shoe business but yes the answer to that question is lois and i got married in 1963 Late in the 60s, I started to do much better financially. We bought the house we live in today, which is a lovely house in Brookline, in 1969. So he got to see that that happened. In my mother's case, uh, she lived on till 2001. And uh, she was, uh, you know, I started to say before, her perseverance in the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Whereas other people, and Lois sometimes would say, get a life, what do you, I'd come up with these cockamamie ideas. For the, your listeners, cockamamie means, what, wild, <laughs> crazy ideas? Yeah. No, not to be fulfilled. And Lois would say, come on. And you know what my mother would say? Go for it. Well, it, she sounded like a lady with a lot of spunk, no question about that. You know, as we talk about family, it's a cliche for the husband in the relationship to have a contentious relationship with in-laws. In the case of 
Jack and Sophie, Lois's parents. Not so. You enjoyed them and they enjoyed you. Talk a little bit about them. Well, they were very gentle people, too. You know, early in the America, uh, Sophie was born in this country. Jack was born in Poland or Russia. Yeah, I think more like Poland, in a shtetl more. Came over here when he was like 11 and uh, swiftly learned the language, spoke with no accent, became a pharmacist. He was small, but had athletic ability. He was a terrific golfer and a good baseball player and uh, sort of shy, a little bit withdrawn a very good person, and uh, Sophie, they did not have children immediately, and Sophie, who was not the type to make demands at all, she was the opposite of my mother, really, in uh, her demeanor, and um, she was very, uh, a very, very nice person. Sweet. Lived on till 98, mm. and um, so uh, in Sophie's case, she, I, the, the family story goes that she said to Jack, I mean, you know, I want to adopt a, kid, a child or I'm out of here. And uh, Jack didn't. But then uh, he relented and they adopted Lois, who was born to a family in, in uh, uh, what's the town next to Cambridge? Somerville. Yes. And um, so... This is something I'm telling you, I guess you didn't know. Mm-hmm. So that, um, and you know, it turned out Lois, who's not Jewish by birth, is more Jewish than most people I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told us about the chopped liver. That's a sure well, sign. Well, she even looks Jewish to me. And she used to, she had a nose, I don't know, I hate to use the expression nose, Joe. She had a little hook on her nose, which I thought was ter- was terrific. I thought it made her look really great. But, you know, you know women, uh, women, she decided she wanted to have a straight nose. She looks great no matter what, but she's terrific looking at the moment. Oh, yes, she is. She and, is. Uh, but it's, it's nice to know that, uh, that you had such a nice relationship. What about Ida? Well, well let, let, no, let, me, let me go on with okay, that. Okay, go, go on with that. So I, I want to go on with that. But so that, um, so they, they adopted Lois. I have never—this relationship between Lois, her father, and her mother was so natural— that I cannot imagine a relationship like that being any better with any uh, child born, you know, with them being the actual parents. Mm. I mean, they were so close. They accepted her and her family, the whole family, accepted Lois, but especially her mother and father, totally as their child. And so she, in turn, developed a very close relationship with the whole family. Lois took care of her father and mother in this way. Her father died at 84 in 1995. She was so um, uh, loyal to him, you know, took care of him uh, and did everything he needed. He had heart trouble and he was in decline for some years, maybe four or five years at the end, died at 84. And then when her mother went uh, through an intercession on my part to Hebrew senior life, and lived out there in Rosendale for the last 11 years of her life, Lois went every single day and became like part of the staff, running bingo games, and she'd bring the dog, and the dog would visit people. They wanted to give Lois a day, and typically for Lois, she said, I don't want a day. And uh, so that's the kind of relationship. I, I can remember when Sophie passed away, um, I was there at her bedside, and she passed away very, very uh, 
nicely, you know, no pain, just sort of transition from life to death. And um, Lois was there. I went out for about a few minutes. I seemed to be always coming back a little little late. And I came back and, and Sophie had passed away. They were two very lovely people. They accepted me like a son. Um, they um, and I found a lot of gratification with them. When I had bad times, they would commiserate with me, um, and uh, so it was. It was a nice relationship. Now you asked about Ida. Ida was the matriarch in the family, and she was she was from the old country as well. A great cook, and but the, you have to understand the whole Ravaby family that were are pessimists. I mean, they think that every day is going to this. This is you know, this is a a holdover from from living in in Europe. Yes, because when, when you, life was really life was rough. T- in the pale. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was either going to be Cossacks or Russian soldiers or Nazis or Nazis later on, and uh, you know, so even after they got to the United States, and even after they did well in the United States, and this rubbed off on Lois, they see everything as Disaster. Oy, such suffering, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this is a, a Jewish characteristic. Uh, but um, so I came into the family, and I'm I'm an optimist. I always think everything's going to turn out, if you want to call me a Pollyanna, fine. I mean, you know, but that's the way I am. So that um, so I go to – so Ida is, is in the hospital at age maybe 80. And everybody says, well, Ida's on the way out. She's got heart trouble. And – Let's go see Ida, and uh, she's going to go away. She used to call me the prince. Now, I didn't know whether that was a compliment or uh, a negative. It might have been a compliment, but she might have been saying saying it sarcastically. I don't know. But she liked me, and uh, we got along very well. And she cooked great. I mean, I'm, rugula? You want rugula? <laughs> she made was fantastic. Um, made in the old style. So I went over to the hospital to see her. I was by myself. And um, and I'm sort of outspoken, you know, I'm, uh, in most situations. And, you know, people go to hospitals and they don't talk to to the person about are they going to die or their sickness or, you know, they, they, they try and be, I think, to me, falsely, you know, uh, s- sort talk of. Talk about Pollyanna. That's, that's, you know, change the subject. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, no, I think a lot of people just, you know, they don't get to the subject. Yeah. So the subject may be called, in this particular case, life and death. So I come there and I see Ida. She looks pretty good to me. So I said, uh, well, Ida, I said, uh, you know, they tell me that when I came that you're pretty badly sick, but you look okay to me. Um, And I think, uh, you know, things may be looking up. So, uh, and I was very frank with her. I said, you know, I think you've got some years left. I mean, I myself would like to have more of that rugula. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what to make a now I don't I don't say I don't account for the for me being a special agent from God or something that gave her another five or six years of life, but a couple of days later the doctors decided Ida could leave the hospital. Not only did she leave the hospital. But she lived to 86 or something like that. You, an attitude adjustment. They say it's what's up here, I'm pointing to my brain, that can make a difference in your physical. Well, you know, if a person wills themselves to die, they'll die. Sure. And if a person thinks uh, – so, you know, I, I think it, it had an effect. I don't know what the effect was, but she may have just decided herself, I don't feel that bad. Question is, 
Did you get much rugula after that? Did you get <laughs> she any? kept calling me the prince. Well, <laughs> well these are great stories, Larry. Uh, and your memory is incredible. And, and you tell such great stories about these family members. Yeah, but I can't remember yesterday. Well, none of us can. <laughs> this has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.